Hello, you're listening to the No Fibs podcast series, where citizen journalists from across Australia cover the important Auspol and Ausvotes topics that matter to you. My name is Charlie Caruso, and you can find me on Twitter or online via the Smashing Avocado hashtag. Today's podcast will be the first of a series that will explore the impacts that political donations have on public policy outcomes in Australia. Kate Griffiths is a researcher at the Grattan Institute who, along with some of her colleagues, have published several articles on the conversation, which has been based on the research that they've done about political donations and the need for reform. Kate, welcome to the No Fibs podcast. Thanks for agreeing to share some of your insights that you've gained with this research on political donations in Australia. Thanks, Charlie. Happy to be here. Now, one of the articles that that you've published uh, on this topic highlights there's a lack of consistency or standardisation between the state governments and the federal governments when it comes to how they regulate or report on political donations. Could you paint a bit of a picture um, as to what's going on and and where does the federal government sit in, in terms of best practice? Sure. So yes, each of the states has quite a different system and the federal government has its own system again. And um, and look, they've got different strengths and weaknesses, but uh, it gives a really good, in fact, sort of micro experiment to sort of look at how different states systems are working and, and what's working well and what's not. Um, and in terms of on specifically political donations disclosures, so what we actually know about donations, there's just much better information at the state level for most states than there is at the federal level. So we know in Queensland, in Victoria, in New South Wales, we know about donations once they reach the $1,000 mark. So a big donation or a donation that's on the record is is over $1,000. And uh, in uh, some other states like South Australia, it's 5,000, but that's still pretty reasonable compared to the federal government. Um, The the Commonwealth regime discloses at $13,800. So we have much less visibility of donations at the federal level than we do at the state level. One of the other issues is actually the timeliness as well. So we we get more timely data at the state level. So we know, so voters can actually know when they go to the polls, how much uh, different groups are donating to the party that they they plan to support. So they can see who's funding the campaigns. Uh, And that's sort of of referred to as real-time disclosures. And we see that kind of thing. Um, in Queensland, and we don't see that uh, at the federal level. So we see uh, the Commonwealth level donations are disclosed a full year, um, sometimes up to 19 months after they're actually made. That's quite remarkable, really, considering we live in an age where we've got, you know, tools that that make the process of real-time donations relatively simple and cost-effective. So the fact that it's not been um, introduced and certainly across the board um, appears to me to be a bit of a no-brainer. And I'd imagine that's, that's helping to add to the growing uh, you know, dis, distrust, I guess, that people have with political donations and also the influence in, in, with corporates. Um, is, have you gone specifically into that with your research around the distrust part of it? So certainly the fall in trust in government is part of the impetus to look at um, some of the reforms that are possible in these sorts of areas because the fear that special interest groups might be influencing policy through donations, through lobbying, is a big big part of um, uh, why there is fall in trust in government. We see that um, people are much more sceptical that government is run for a few big interests, for example, rather than for the public interest. And we're seeing 
patterns, so growing trends towards um, suspicions around those areas at the same time as we're seeing fall in trust in government. So certainly these two things are interlinked. Um, certainly also um, on the issue of, of things like real-time donations disclosures, it's a political decision not to disclose them um, in closer to real time. It's certainly not a technological barrier that, that prevents uh, much faster disclosures. It's, it's a decision to try to keep donations out of the, um, the election campaigns, for example, uh, when actually I think it's important information for voters to have. It's just one thing that they can consider amongst many. It's not um, going to be the sole deciding factor, but it's certainly some information that voters should have at the time rather than, uh, you know, actually we had a recent example of this, the 2018 um, Tasmanian election. We saw the first disclosures uh, of donations during that election in, in 2019, earlier this year. And uh, it became apparent that actually um, gambling groups were, or pro-gambling groups were behind um, most of the funding for uh, the party that won government. And that's the sort of information that, that voters should have at the time. I agree. It feels like that is public interest information. Um, and I'd be really interested to, I put out on Twitter to ask a lot of the independents that are running how they sit and, and would they support the introduction of real-time uh, reporting for political donations. I'd like to think that many of them would. With your research, what's some of the most concerning examples of special interest influence? Because um, obviously the, the understanding is that they're influencing Australian public policy in a way that's, I guess, in opposition to the best interests of the community. Have you come across some really, um, you've just touched on a few with the gambling, but any other um, examples of that kind of influence that we assume is happening and we assume is why they're not, you know, interested or, or aren't um, updating real time? So what we found in our um, 2018 research was, first of all, just a lot of secrecy around money and access in Australian politics. So not a lot of information out there on donations, not a lot of information out there on who ministers meet with or lobbying activity. So generally speaking, uh, a lot more secrecy than say um, other developed nations have. And um, then from what we can see, so the information that is published, which tends to be at state level rather than federal level, uh, the states do show um, quite skewed access, so access for particular um, groups, particularly high regulation businesses. So these are businesses for, for whom government decisions can make a big difference to the bottom line, positively or negatively. And um, we see that those sorts of groups get quite a lot of access uh, to decision makers, probably because they're knocking on doors. Uh, but we don't see so much access for, say, consumer and community groups who might be on the other side of a particular policy debate, but who are not sort of there knocking on doors and advocating for themselves. And, and that's a real concern. So they were the, the broad brush findings. As far as particular examples um, that we were worried about, we, we, looked, we map a variety of risk factors that are sort of present in the system at the moment. But actually, like, tying kind of a donation to a policy change is really tricky and contested space. But what we did find was there's certainly examples where heavy lobbying activity seems to have played a role in, in the outcome. And, and one of those examples would be something like the, the casino at Barangaroo proposed by James Packer back in 2012. It was pitched personally to the Premier. So there's kind of a relationship building, a connections thing um, that um, other potential those other potential people interested in building a casino might not have that level of access in the first place that, that Packer had. Uh, but then on top of that, hiring um, lobbyists 
who brought uh, the ALP on board in terms of securing their support, then um, pitching this sort of unsolicited proposal, so a proposal that government wasn't asking for, for, for a new casino and actually getting support from the government for the proposal as well as policy sort of concessions like exemptions from smoke-free laws uh, or carve out from the lockout law zone in Sydney. So these are incredible um, sort of special deals that seem to have been on the table for this project alone and have been achieved largely it seems through things like heavy lobbying and donations. Now lobbying, it's a really interesting um, element of our system because I have always had a real disdain or, or dislike towards the idea of lobbying, despite the fact that I understand that there's certain interests that have a right to have a voice and have their impacts in, say, their um, community or who they represent as a body voiced and, and discussed in Parliament to help form um, evidence-based policy. I understand that need, that mechanism. What concerns me is obviously how that is used um, in the reality of using corporate influence or, or money or privileges or time that, that is in contrary to best interests. Can you talk to me a little bit about um, the research that you and the Grattan Institute have done in specifically to, about lobbying and how it's impacting um, public policy outcomes? Yeah, you're absolutely right to highlight that kind of balancing act between the role that all interests have to play, like a really important role that they can play in, in advocating for themselves, um, in making government aware of the impacts of its decisions. Um, in fact, lobbying is often, or lobbyists are often the first in the room to highlight a, a really dumb decision by government because they can see how it affects them and the broader populace. And so, you know, those sorts of external contributions are critical to making sure we're actually getting or developing sound policy and, and keeping those in public office accountable. So you're absolutely right to highlight that uh, lobbying has an important role to play and that um, all interests should be able to advocate for themselves. That's, that's democracy working. Um, I guess the, what we highlight as the concerning part is that some interests do have a lot more opportunity to influence than others. Um, some of that's because they just have more resources. Um, some of it's because they're, they're more organised and active. It's, it's very hard to motivate a large group of people for whom are affected only a small amount than it is to motivate a few people who are affected a lot. Uh, so you tend to get sort of smaller interest groups advocating hard, whereas the broader groups like, say, consumers or taxpayers are perhaps not uh, sufficiently organised to advocate for their interests. So you hope that the process has, um, policy making processes have ways of correcting for those sorts of imbalances in who has op the opportunity to access and influence. I guess one of the other things we sort of are concerned about is that policy can be, might be made influenced by a sort of unbalanced view of the issues because they haven't heard the other side or, or influenced by self-interest uh, where perhaps there's something in it for the party or for the decision maker and that's where you know donations are a concern that's also where uh, uh, the, what's called a revolving door is a concern where policymakers move into lobbying roles post politics and vice versa and there's a sort of coziness that can be created by this movement of people from political offices into lobbying offices and vice versa so if there's a sense that you know ministers are making any decision with their future 
job in mind, with a, with a cushy job post-politics in mind, that's a real worry too. So these are all factors um, where, you know, undue influence um, could be a part, playing a part and we'd be very concerned um, when things like the interest of the party or self-interest are, are above the public interest in policy making. Yeah, you're spot on because um, my experience um, on a few boards that I've been on for non-for-profits is, um, you know, the ability to lobby with and um, have the voices of the non-for-profits say as, as an entity is really critical for them, largely because they're they're facing the um, they're in the trenches, so to speak, of potentially bad policy and just need to have a voice to say actually this is how it's affecting us. And I see that, but I also see the fact that um, often they're underfunded and the process of doing that is really, really tr tricky. So what is, has the Grattan Institute or yourself um, done any sort of thinking or research around transparency of this entire process so that, you know, we understand interests need to have um, a voice in some way to, to integrate or to, to um, promote their concerns, but we don't want this to be skewed or in any way influenced by the amount of donations um, that they put. So is there a way to elevate this into the public space so that there is a greater level of transparency between the politicians and those who need or feel the need to um, submit their thoughts on certain legislation? Yeah, absolutely. We recommend a few measures to improve transparency and transparency is really important because it actually empowers some of those groups who are perhaps less well represented because it gives them information. So basically um, the public itself, um, media, the parliament can all see when uh, access and influence might be skewed by donations or by lobbying activity if, if they are aware of those donations and if they can see data on lobbying activity. So the sorts of measures we um, recommend in terms of improving transparency in the system are things like looking, talking about donations disclosures being a more transparent. The big one here is actually, we, we spoke about the, the thresholds before and how they're quite different across different states. That's one piece of the puzzle. So making sure the donations disclosure threshold um, is, is lower than the current one. Um, we recommend around 5,000, um, similar to what South Australia has. Victoria and New South Wales already have lower thresholds than that. That's great too. Uh, that gives more expo exposure of, of large donations in the system. But actually even more importantly than uh, being able to see donations of that size is actually to be able to aggregate donations under that threshold. So as when they do exceed whatever the threshold is, they're on the record. And this is the big loophole in the federal system at the moment. So in the federal system, a donation doesn't need to be disclosed until it exceeds the threshold of $13,800. But multiple donations under that threshold don't have to be declared by the party. So the party could receive multiple donations of, say, $10,000 from the same donor, and that doesn't need to be declared because they don't, they're not required to aggregate the donations. It is something that's on the donor to do. So the donor is supposed to aggregate their own donations, but it's just one of those things that nobody can possibly police if the donor chooses not to declare that. So it's... Um, it's a real loophole in the current system, and it means that there's a lot of um, there's a lot of money to to both major parties, more than half their funding, um, their private funding that we don't know anything about, and it's impossible to say whether that's lots of small donations from mum and dads at sausage sizzles, or whether in fact there's lots of large donations in there from groups that are that are hiding um, deliberately off the public record. So that's one of the concerns with the current system. 
The other big one is just um, lobbying activity. We really don't know much about it at this stage. There's no information on who ministers meet with, who they spend their time with in terms of official meetings. Uh, there is at state level in Queensland, New South Wales, uh, now in the ACT, they publish this sort of information. And it's really important for voters and for journalists to be able to see um, who is actually getting the opportunity to influence. And we saw that in New South Wales when, for example, there was a ban on greyhound racing was uh, introduced, then later overturned. And we can see uh, in who met with the ministers, who had the opportunity to kind of influence both that initial decision and the overturning of the decision. And we can see that in between the initial decision and the overturning, the um, relevant ministers met only with um, the Greyhound Racing lobbyists and not with, say, the RSPCA. So that's really uh, important information for, again, um, the public, for Parliament to have, to hold um, ministers to account when they're making decisions. Yeah, it's it's astounding um, the fact that they are their loophole, like you sort of touched on, with the multiple of ten thousand, and there's no need to, um, or there's no regulation that specifically looks at the um, accumulation of donation as a you know as a balance sheet. Let's say um, that's quite extraordinary. I actually didn't even realise it was that bad. Um, it's a no-brainer to change that one. It's it's just so um, clearly a loophole. But to at this point. Um, action is still yet to be made on that front and I think partly because uh, tackling that question might involve tackling broader questions like what the threshold is is at and, and real-time disclosures and that tends not to be in the, in the interest of of any government it tends to be more in the interests of smaller parties and opposition parties whoever they might be um, to have visibility of what government is doing rather than those in government who can actually change it. It's really interesting because I think another thing um, that's often glossed over when we have conversations, obviously we, we touched on with the lobbyists, the need for there to be some kind of mechanism to um, allow communications and voice of um, bodies that needs to happen in some way. But equally with political donations, one of the elements that is a um, elephant in the room, so to speak, is the fact that getting elected, the, the, the costs to get elected and to stay elected is, is quite significant. And so largely parties, especially the bigger you are, they're more donation hungry, so to speak. And so that, that, that mm. cost is real. And, you know, there can be a debate or will it should be 100% publicly funded, albeit I have questions around that because what is that a free-for-all for anyone that decides to put their hand up at where do we put the checks and balances in terms of public access to money to run but the idea is or I guess the point I'm trying to raise is there is going to be a cost to run and to stay engaged and to stay um, in power and that money has to come from somewhere thus there is this uh, potential for it to become um, in ways that you know, favours basically paying for favours um, post-election, which I think a lot of people are aware that it happens and are concerned about. Have you had any thoughts or, or the Grattan Institute had any thoughts on 100% um, public um, funded donations or is are your recommendations more around changing and amending what we have already to just tighten up, you know, transparency and accountability? Yeah, we definitely looked at this issue as part of um, broader reforms, what needs to be done. And really, I mean, you're right that there's a sort of donations arms race where parties really do have an incentive to seek the extra dollar because it gives them the opportunity to put their message out there. It gives them a better chance of getting elected. So there is this real underlying sort of problem arms race. 
what we looked at was um, a range of possible solutions to that, one of which um, proposed is 100% is public funding. But it, it actually doesn't look like a very good idea, that particular one, because uh, for a start, and probably most importantly, it's unlikely to hold up. So it's very likely to be overturned by the High Court because under our constitution, people have um, a sort of freedom of political communication and that includes expressing their political views through a donation. So the ability for there to be private donations in the system uh, to some degree is, is reasonably well protected. Uh, and that means that actually a mixed funding model uh, is much more realistic. There, there are other good reasons for having private funding in the system, like for example, that um, it actually encourages parties to go out there and engage with a broader group of people than just their own party room. Um, but there's obviously issues with it too. So what we came around to was um, a recommendation that we actually put limits on how much spending there can be during an election campaign, particularly on political advertising, because that is easier to regulate. So essentially there would be limits on how much a party can spend during an election campaign and on how much third parties can spend at the same period. And what that does is it means that when there's a, a sort of cap on how much you can actually spend, there's a limit on how much influence any one donation can really make because the, the total um, pool of funds is set and um, each donation becomes potentially replaceable. Essentially, it reduces the power of individual donors within, within a party. It also, um, it also has the potential kind of to balance out some of the um, skew in ability to sort of pitch your case during an election campaign. So some interest groups have a lot more uh, resources to pitch their case than others do. And we've seen that in major uh, advertising campaigns uh, by the Property Council against negative gearing, for example, by, the, by mining companies and the Minerals Council against the mining tax. There's, there's been several cases of, of lobby groups essentially bombarding uh, the public and also the government of the day um, with advertising. And what this would do is that at least in an election campaign, there's a limit to how much any group can spend uh, on influencing voters, which just reduces the influence of money in the process. Now, your list of recommendations, that can be found on the Grattan Institute website, is that correct? Yes, so the report we released last year uh, is called Who's in the Room? Access and Influence in Australian Politics. And yes, it's on Grattan's website, grattan.edu.au. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the No Fibs podcast and giving us some insight into uh, the research that yourself and the Grattan Institute have done on this matter. And um, I'll make sure I put a link to the website so anyone that is listening can uh, follow that up further and, and read the um, outcomes of your reports and a series of recommendations. Thank you, Kate. Thanks, Charlie. And that concludes my chat with Kate Griffiths. As I said, I will be sure to post a link to her report on the NoFibs website for those that are interested in taking a deeper look into the reforms that they've recommended. As I record this, Rob Oakeshott tweeted to confirm that he would support legislation for real-time political donations to be mandatory across Australia, and I imagine there'll be more independents who'll join him over the coming hours and days. If greater levels of transparency in our political system is important to you, be sure to use the power of Twitter and emails and letters and ask your representatives their position on political donation reform. 
There's a lot more ground to cover on this topic and I'll be interviewing uh, several other people in the coming weeks to further explore this issue and how it is impacting Australian democracy. That's all from me today though. My name is Charlie Caruso. Follow me and the NoFibs team on Twitter. And if you like what we do, feel free to show your support by donating to our current Chuff crowdfunding campaign, which helps us produce more content for the people of Australia and on topics on Ozpol and Ozvotes. Ciao.